0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The word chosen dates back to the book of Moses where it says in Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 that Israel was God's beloved. They were his chosen. Israel was always supposed to be the chosen they were to think of themselves that way and they were to remember that always and never forget why because Moses has to remind them by the time he writes and preaches Deuteronomy the people are ready to enter the new land that God has prepared for them God seen them through the wilderness And they must never forget that the reason they were chosen was not because of how great they were or how wonderful they were or how uh, surpassing was their wisdom and glory and strength. It was because they were the least, because they were the least of all the peoples in the world, because they were slaves, because God chooses the weak things of the world. They were chosen by God's love. And they were to remember always how they were out in the wilderness for 40 years, how they hungered and God gave them manna, how they grumbled and God disciplined them, so that as they go forward, they will always treasure the Lord. It's a time of testing that follows the choosing See, with the word chosen comes these meanings in Hebrew, the elect, the beloved, the desired. But also a secondary meaning is the tested. Because to be chosen is to be tested. And God doesn't want Israel ever to forget that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. To be chosen, then, is God's free gift. It is a gift of his grace and his love, not because of who we are, not because we've chosen him, but because he's loved us despite all of our flaws and sins. And with that comes, then, a test, a time of humbling, a time of suffering that will follow the choosing. So Paul, in our text from Acts chapter 9, is first called Saul. And as we learn to meet this man, as he's called Saul the Pharisee, he's reliving this very story of being Israel the chosen, which is why I've chosen that first word for today from verse 15. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel because I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. When Ananias hears about this man Saul coming to Damascus and God tells him, you're to go and meet him, he's right to hesitate. He's right to have this hesitation in his mind and heart because he knows who Saul is. The first time we hear about Saul is when Stephen is being stoned to death in chapter 7 and 8. We hear about this man standing alongside of the men who are stoning Stephen to death, approving of his execution, and holding their coats as they throw the rocks. It says, from there, a great persecution was sent throughout all Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout all the regions. Saul was ravaging the church. The word for ravaging there in chapter 8, verse 3, is destroying. And in Psalm 80, it refers to what a wild boar does when he tears up the ground and destroys a vineyard. Then again in chapter 9, Saul is mentioned. And here it says that he's breathing threats and murders like that wild animal again, tearing up the ground. Only now he's panting and snorting. And then again, a third time in chapter 9, verse 21, when the people are hearing about Saul, they say, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? for those who called upon the Lord. And the word havoc is to cause chaos and maul. The description here is of Saul, the wild animal, dragging men and women out of their houses, taking them to prison, watching them be executed by stoning When Jesus visits Paul, he says, you're kicking against the goads. In other words, he's describing him again as a wild animal that is trying to be tamed and trained, but he keeps kicking. You know, you get too close, you try to tell him which way to go, and he kicks back at you. Why do you keep on hurting yourself, Jesus says, by kicking against the cattle prods? The choosing of Saul among all the people means that Jesus is like a farmer, a trainer, a rancher, and he's trying to get Paul's attention by prodding at him, prodding at his conscience, prodding at him, trying to get him to go a different way. And Paul, all the while, with this ambition, this drive, just keeps kicking back. Do you ever find yourself kicking back against the Lord's prodding. Indeed, to be a disciple of Jesus can be painful. It can mean there's times when there's thorns in our flesh, there's poking at us, there's trials and tests that we go through. And while Jesus is always loving and patient and gentle and lowly, there are times when he needs to prod us because we're too stubborn because we've forgotten how gentle and lowly and loving he is. And So he has to prod us. <clears throat> Have you ever seen this where someone is clearly kicking back and in the process they're hurting themselves? And Jesus is saying, why do you keep hurting yourself? By kicking back against the one who loves you and who is trying to bring you to a better place. But for some reason we keep on doing it. Perhaps because we think it's too painful to repent. We'd rather be prodded than repent, face the truth, give up control, surrender our will. It's more painful to do that, so we figure we'll just keep indulging and fighting back so we can remain in some sort of control of this situation. Here is Saul He was probably a power-hungry, driven, young individual. The type that will get A-pluses on all of his exams. The type that will climb the ladder, scrapping his way to the top. And this authority he's getting from the high priest now to go and investigate the Christians in Damascus is just fueling his pride. But beneath that all is his reasoning. What is it that justifies Paul in taking these people to prison and watching them be executed? It's not a selfish revenge that Saul is seeking against Christians. Instead, it's a religious zeal. What justifies Saul in doing these things is that he, in his mind, thinks this is a sacrifice and offering to the Lord God to stamp out this false teaching. It's a religious crusade. And Jesus says in John 16, the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are offering to God a service. So you've got a strong-willed individual with zeal for God, with passion for a cause, with ambition for recognition. And it is this combination that leads men to madness. Jesus is clear here that Saul is hurting himself. But he's not just hurting himself, he's hurting others there's what I would call a collateral damage to his zeal. In Romans chapter 10, the later Paul writes that they have zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. It's a foolish zeal. It's not shaped and driven by knowledge of God. And so there's all this collateral damage to their zeal that while they think they're doing something good, meaningful, purposeful, They're blind. They're really only concerned about elevating themselves, their tribe, and their own righteousness at the expense of all else so that when the day is done and they've accomplished their religious purpose to stand on top of the podium, everyone around them is a mess and it's the path of the wild boar driving through the vineyard. But it, Paul is, uh, Saul is not just hurting himself. He's not just hurting the people around him. But now Jesus brings it home when he says, why are you persecuting me? The most important part here is that he's not just hurting himself. He's not just hurting others. But by kicking back this way, he's hurting Jesus. Shockingly, Jesus associates himself with this scattered little movement in Judea of people who seem to have no place to go and the powers are swiping them out. He associates himself with the suffering of his people, the lowliest of people, and that is the cross, where the true zeal for God is revealed, not in a man who climbs up the ladder, but a man who goes down. Not in upward mobility, but in downward mobility. You see how Jesus took all of the ambition of men with religious zeal and he simply submitted himself to it. All of mankind's ambition was thrown at Jesus in the insults, in his unwanted figure, in his identification, with other forsaken people, Jesus became the curse. Which is why Isaiah writes about this. The chosen servant, the chosen instrument of God, the one who, we said last week, has no form or comeliness. When we see him, we don't desire him, he's unwanted. People don't see his beauty. They don't see his glory. They see something they don't want in their lives because it involves suffering and humility. But Isaiah says this is the light. The light of the Gentiles, the light of the world, is found in this lowly servant who's come to suffer. And suddenly a light shines around Saul from this lowly servant. It's described like the glory which the shepherds saw when the angels appeared and the glory showed all around them. Now this light is shining around Saul, the light of the gospel and glory of Jesus Christ. He is risen and he says, I am the one you're hurting. Jesus is alive and he's dwelling with his people so that when they suffer, he suffers. By sending his Holy Spirit to us, Jesus is living out everything that we're going through for better or for worse in good times and bad times in health and in sickness. Jesus is with us through it all. And when we are persecuted, he is persecuted. This is the blindness that people don't see. And it takes three days of blindness and fasting and prayer before God is ready to show it to Paul. The church appears as something that it is not in poverty, suffering, and weakness. And so Saul is to become a part of this. It's interesting that now that Saul is brought into the disciples, and he's brought into the church, and he's welcomed in with baptism. The very friends who just days ago were welcoming him into Damascus with plans to carry out the will of the high priest are now turning and wanting to kill Saul. What does that tell you about the power behind what they're doing? Saul's response to Jesus is, what shall I do? And in his way of thinking, he's wondering how can he appease the Lord and Savior of the world that he's so badly hurt? How can we, when we've done so much of sin in our life, we cause damage in our life, possibly appease our Lord and Master now? But Jesus doesn't tell him what he needs to do right away, and instead he says, just wait. Which is the first thing to do when we are reflecting on sins that we're repenting of, is learning to just wait, to listen, to be quiet, to fast and pray, before we think at all about how we're going to deal with this. Jesus doesn't say right away, but in time, Jesus does finally speak, And when he does, here's what he tells Saul he's supposed to do. Go and suffer. To be the Lord's chosen means that his grace and love and free gift come to you. No strings attached. That Jesus would love you. He would forgive and wipe out all of your sins and hold nothing against you, comes freely as a gift. Not because of who you are, not because of anything you're going to do, not because of any upward accomplishments you're ever going to make for Christ. He simply chooses. And from there, he says, the rest is left to me. And that path of being chosen includes also the testing. So Saul was chosen to become Paul. Saul, the Pharisee of the Jews, is soon going to be called Paul the preacher to the Gentiles when he's sent out on his first missionary journey in a few more chapters. He's now called Paul the rest of the way out. And it's a contrast between his Jewish name, Saul, which is from the Hebrew, and his Greco-Roman name, Paul, because now he's gonna be immersed in the world of people that he used to hate, despise, and even try to kill. When Paul later reflected on this, he told Pastor Timothy, it was for this reason that I was chosen, that I might become a pattern to others of the Lord's mercy. So that people who have been on the wrong path, who have been bent on destroying Christianity or hurting others can see there's a pattern for mercy where that person can turn and the Lord says, I will shine my light on you. And I will show you what you haven't yet seen. And I will give you a purpose which will mean that you will now suffer for me. I think it's an amazing thing to think about converting A strong-willed person. Do any of you know any strong-willed people? Are any of you strong-willed people? I mean, sometimes you can meet a strong-willed person so stubborn that even if you show them they're wrong, right in front of your face, they'll say, ah, you're missing the point. It's amazing to think about a strong-willed person submitting What happens with this will is it's like a superpower. A strong-willed person can do amazingly bad things and be amazingly accomplished at it. They can accomplish all sorts of things with their zeal, their drive, their motivation, their commitment to accomplishing something, no matter what the collateral damage. And now God says, I'm gonna take your gift of being a driven, motivated, strong-willed person. I'm gonna break that will and make you blind. You're gonna to have to be led by the hand to where I want you to go. And then I'm gonna reverse that power through my Holy Spirit so that now, your zeal, your strength, and your will are gonna be directed toward my purposes. And so that superpower that was once used to destroy the church now becomes an instrument for the gospel. And a strong-willed person who's converted to Christ, who realizes that there is so much more they could do with their time and energy and mind, can go out and put that strength to good work. Put that zeal into the kingdom as Paul did writing all these letters, traveling to all these places, being willing to suffer to the point of death rather than forsake the one who saved him. You see why the Lord says, Go, you are a chosen vessel of mine to carry my name before the nations and kings and the children of Israel And I will show you how much you will suffer for the sake of my name. Amen.